welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Daniel Larison, as we try to make sense of the outrageous distortions of truth and rationale in the imperial city. We're also trying to bring in saner voices on foreign policy as the country, wary from war and the status quo failures in Washington, opens its minds and hearts to new ways of thinking. This week, we will be talking to Yale lecturer Michael Brennis on some of his recent articles, including Wealth for All Nations, The War in Ukraine, and the Making of a New Global Order, and the Future of Restraint After Ukraine. But first, let's talk about some of the hysterical goings-on in Washington this week. As you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy was able to procure enough votes for the House Speakership last Friday. To the chagrin of budget hawks, one of the concessions he reportedly got for the votes uh, that he needed to claw in to become Speaker was a measure that would tie any raising of the debt ceiling to budget cuts and keep the twenty keep the federal budget to 2022 levels. Cuts would put all spending on the block, but many of the reports over the weekend pointed to comments by conservative Republicans who said that it would include military spending, which is up to a record $858 billion as of the most recent budget bill. Now, we're not under any illusion that d- defense cuts would pass a full House, much less the Senate, or get signed by the president, but it raises some important questions about fiscal responsibility and the ability of the federal government to let sound strategy create defense budget needs, not the other way around, with a desire to plow more money into private contractors is driving our national defense strategy. But wow, did the very suggestion of defense budget cuts drive the usual suspects into perennial tearing at hair and rending clothes on Monday? In one column uh, written by Jen Rubin, uh, she said that the prospect of such a budget cut, some 75 to 100 billion is what we're talking, quote, makes only authoritarians, despots, and dictators smile. Uh, not, a, And I'm sorry, she didn't say that. She said that there would be ramifications in our national security. She was quoting Mackenzie England, who is an AEI defense hawk, as saying that this would only make authoritarians, despots, and dictators smile. Not surprisingly, Liz Cheney said budget cuts would, quote, weaken our national security. And President Biden jumped on the bandwagon uh, saying that GOP lawmakers were seeking to, quote, defund the military and said uh, this push to, quote, defund our military in the name of politics is senseless and out of line with our national security needs. Dan, I know this is all hyperbole and pretty predictable, but I find it interesting that the conservative wing of the GOP is taking all the heat, uh, even from progressives who have been trying pretty hard to cut defense budget, the defense budget all these years. Um, Has has defense budget oversight become so uh, like everything else, hyper politicized? And are we under any... um, illusion here that uh, that any budget cuts will ever happen in our lifetime. The budget cuts themselves, I'll believe them when I see them. Uh, We've seen over the last 20 years, uh, the military budget typically only ever goes up. Uh, The the only times I can recall it ever decreasing at all uh, were in the wake of the drawdowns from Iraq uh, in in the early uh, 2010s. When you had the Budget Control Act trying to impose some kind of limit 
on spending. Uh, and of course, there was a, there was a furious pushback against that too when military spending levels were much lower than they are today. Um, I, I think it, it is curious that this was one of the things that the the rebels against McCarthy insisted on. I, I still find it a little hard to believe that this is actually part of the agreement that they made with him to get him the votes for his speakership. Uh, but but it, it could be. Uh, and, and so I, I welcome it because we we desperately need Congress to rein in that spending. As we know, both parties in Congress typically uh, volunteer to throw more money at the Pentagon regardless of need uh, as a way of, of demonstrating their uh, supposed seriousness on national security. Of course, as, as we as you and I know, uh, the, this constant reflexive urge to spend more uh, is, is a clear sign of how unserious uh, the debate around military spending is in Washington, because uh, the U.S. does not need an $858 billion military budget to keep itself secure. Uh, it doesn't need that to keep its allies secure. Uh, it certainly wouldn't need that much if its allies started pulling their, uh, doing their fair share of providing for their own security. Uh, but of course, that, I mean, that's a, a slightly separate question, but it, but it is related to the levels of spending that we do. Because every time we jack up our spending, they have that much less incentive to do more for themselves. Uh, and if if any uh, reduction in military spending is considered some sort of heresy, uh, some sort of betrayal that invites aggression and and causes our enemies to rejoice, then you're, you're basically signing up for endless militarism uh, and, and an extremely uh, costly militarism uh, without end. Um, it's It's just... It's just irrational to keep throwing so much money at the Pentagon when there there are clearly actually fewer threats today to the United States than there were than we thought there were just a few years ago. Russia is obviously is objectively much weaker than we thought it was. And so why are we ramping up spending that much more than we did ten years ago? Uh, it, it is a sign that we we are not budgeting uh, based on strategy. We're not budgeting based on any objective reality. It's simply uh, an automatic reflex uh, that, that needs to be uh, brought under control. What about China? I mean, you've heard time and time again that we are not competitive, that we need to up our technological game to keep up with China and, and to prevent it from becoming a regional, if not global, hegemon. And so I feel like that is the justification for these huge defense budgets, in addition to what we're giving Ukraine and, and the fight for freedom there. But it seems like China is the main justification for ramping up these defense budgets. And it's it's some serious rhetoric that is, it goes right through the Democratic and Republican parties and, and the, the pro-war establishment. Well, and, and certainly China has increased its military spending significantly over the last 20 years. Uh, but, but we have to consider the fact that that our military posture and our spending have also contributed to this dynamic and, and responding to more spending by China by, by ramping up our own uh, simply fuels arms races that, that are ultimately unsustainable uh, for both sides. And, and we have to also consider the, the resources that we're diverting away from other purposes in order to continue funding the Pentagon at these exorbitant levels. Uh, because it, the, the money has to come from somewhere. And, and for every 
uh, you know, 75 billion in new spending that gets tacked on. Uh, that's that's money that's not going to go to any domestic needs and priorities. Uh, and 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 we know that it's much easier for Congress to throw money uh, at the military because that's generally popular or it's not as controversial as spending it on some other domestic project. And so it's there's there's so much less resistance to that kind of spending uh, that it, it's essentially a freebie for for any congressman or uh, congresswoman that wants to, uh, to score points at home. And so it's uh, it's that much more important to to get some kind of control over military spending because there are so few other obstacles to it uh, compared to other kinds. Yeah, and I feel like um, the the rhetoric, uh, like we heard Liz Cheney deploying or Mackenzie England, that suggest that even cutting the budget seventy five to hundred billion would make authoritarians and despots smile, uh, that it would be applauded in the capitals of of Russia and and China is a way to silence uh, the the broader debate, which I believe is so important. I know we've talked about it many times on this show that even if, even if they were correct, that we needed to up our game and um, continue to build on our say deterrence uh, with China, it still doesn't excuse or at least investigate the rampant, uh, abuse of taxpayer funds in the defense contracting world. And we know this, this is all well documented, uh, the overcharging, the fact that we have um, helped to reduce actual c- competition and innovation in the space by allowing the five major contractors to gobble up all the little guys. And so there, there is so much inefficiency going on. And um, so we never get to really talk about that. But Bill Hartung, who I work with at the Quincy Institute, has written quite extensively about this. And he has a piece up today that points out that there's plenty of waste, fraud, and abuse to be addressed. And there's plenty of, of cuts that can be made that aren't even going to go even anywhere near national security ramifications. And he talks about the Congressional Budget Office releasing a study um, just in 221, um, basically saying that the government could trim the defense uh, spending by a trillion dollars over 10 years. Um, and that wasn't even enough in his estimation. But there is just so much fat to be att- to, to to be addressed. But yet the the, the um, McKinsey Englands and the Jennifer Rubens and Liz Cheney's always want to make it sound like it's either or. Either you defend the nation or you look weak if you even think about cutting the budget. Well, and it's and it's it's pure fear mongering. I mean, of course, we expect that from people like uh, Cheney and Rubin. That's. That's what they do in in their foreign policy arguments all the time is to try to to intimidate people uh, and, and scare them into keeping quiet by making it seem as though if if you don't uh, sign up to to one hundred percent of what they want to do that you're uh, insufficiently loyal or insufficiently patriotic and it's I mean it's it's a really tired uh, tactic it's, I mean it, of course it can still work uh, and and intimidate people but it's 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 pretty transparent at this point. Uh, we we can see what they're doing, um, and there was actually a, a good comment on the 
the, the budget kerfuffle uh, from uh, Matt Duss, uh, previously uh, Bernie Sanders' chief foreign policy advisor, uh, he made the, the point that, of course, it's ridiculous to complain about military spending that makes up uh, the next uh, makes up as much as the next eight countries combined, uh, rather than the next nine countries combined. As though, as though U.S. security somehow hinges on keeping it at at nine rather than eight. Uh, it's and it is ridiculous because we have s- such a huge military advantage, uh, not just in terms of, of raw spending, but in terms of uh, the capabilities that the U.S. military has. That it's there's really no contest, and there's no there there is no competition. Uh, with with any other major power, you know, except possibly China, and only in their immediate neighborhood. So, so the idea that we have to be terrified of the the many dictators around the world, uh, and we have to keep constantly upping our military spending, or else we'll we'll somehow be in danger from them, is is just it is pure fear mongering, uh, and and we need to discount it and and dismiss it as such, and and we need to get back to a more sort of rational accounting of what is really needed. Uh, to protect the U.S. and those allies that it actually needs to protect, uh, and 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 learn to, to differentiate between genuine treaty allies that we're obliged to protect, and all the other countries that we have sort of taken under our wing, but we don't actually need to be defending. Our guest today is Michael Brennis. He's Associate Director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy and Lecturer in History at Yale University. He is the author of For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy, and he's currently writing a history of progressive activists and politicians in the Democratic Party since World War II. He also co-authored an article in Foreign Affairs last year with Van Jackson called Great Power Competition is Bad for Democracy, and that, I think, will be relevant to what we'll be talking about today as well. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you on and uh, looking forward to talking about your pieces on restraint uh, that you did just uh, the last few weeks. Sure. Uh, you, the first one uh, was an essay that you wrote for Foreign Exchanges uh, last month discussing the future of foreign policy restraint, uh, in which you call for restrainers to offer a strategy that replaces great power competition in favor of one that unites nations on common terms of international importance. Uh, so in, in broad terms, how should restrainers go about uh, providing that alternative? Yeah, I think I think that piece for foreign exchanges developed out of my frustration, if you will, with uh, the current position of restrainers in the dialogue over Ukraine, uh, and that it seemed to be, and from my perspective, perhaps I'm wrong, that restrainers were ultimately reactive to issues that were on the ground in Ukraine, but also just a long-term vision for where foreign policy is going, uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine, but also great power competition writ large. Uh, And so I, if, if that's, if that's, you know, my frustration uh, then led to some, some thoughts on paper that became this long piece about, how restrainers can create a more affirmative strategy uh, that is not just uh, putting them in the trenches and throwing barbs at various liberal internationalists or war hawks, but 
really thinking about how they collaborate and come together in this moment when uh, it seems to be the again from my perspective that there's a shift in the war uh, and that Ukraine is going to uh, rightly put up a good fight against the Russians and, it's, and that this war is going to last uh, for quite some time uh, beyond the initial couple of months that we all thought it would last uh, in in February and March. Uh, and so given the divides within the restraint, cram- restraint camps, you know, over where we should go, should we just, should we focus on China, you know, the John Mearsheimers uh, of the world, focusing on Stephen Waltz, uh, focusing on offshore balancing, uh, and then some things that Stephen Wertheim wrote about in foreign affairs about progressive foreign policy and the divides within the progressive camp. I thought I could uh, offer my own take and say, well, you know, these divides, yes, they exist, but we shouldn't be focusing on them too much and we shouldn't be caught up in the day-to-day uh, following news events of, of Ukraine, but that uh, we can think about coming together as a, as a group, as restrainers as a group, uh, and putting forward an internationalist vision, vision for foreign policy that uh, prioritizes, I think, issues the, of global importance like climate change, uh, like uh, vaccine distribution uh, and pandemic relief, uh, global terms, uh, demilitarization, uh, nuclear proliferation, like these concerns that uh, are still very much on the table, uh, but haven't received the attention, uh, arguably, because of Ukraine. And again, uh, understandably so. And so that way, if if we're not we're not caught up in in hoping that diplomacy is going to happen soon, we're not uh, we're not dealing with what might what might come down the, the pike in, in one or two days. But we're offering something that's on the table that people can point to. And say this is what restrainers want. This is this is where we can go, uh, and we should prioritize uh, global issues of of climate change and 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 security on other terms outside of great power competition. Uh, And then in your follow-up piece on your own substack, Warfare and Welfare, you talked about how progressive restrainers must reject the framework of great power competition, but you say that its language can be co-opted by progressives for the ends of global cooperation. And so can you say a bit more about what that would look like in practice? Uh, How how do they, how do restrainers co-opt the language of great power competition? Yeah, I think I think again with my within the current limitations of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy making, I think restrainers can't be uh, offering visions of world government or or things like that that were offered in, in your decades past. Right, that that we need to understand that great power competition is here to stay, as Stephen Wertheim has said, and as others have said. I. I I think I said that in the foreign affairs piece with with Van. I don't I don't know if I recall that, but but I think it is here to stay. Uh, and and so given that reality, we need to figure out how we can restrainers can be viable, how they how we can have a voice. And so just by saying, well, reject great power competition, which I think we should, uh, just by saying that alone is not going to get us very far in foreign policy making circles, which is what I'm interested in doing. I'm, I'm having I'm interested in having an impact in in foreign policy decision making. And so if you want to have resonance, if you want to have salience within mass security making circles, you need to talk about great power competition on terms that that are amenable to uh, restrainers. And so this is my point came out of a 
again, the, the Steve Morthheim's piece that he wrote for Foreign Affairs about national interests and national interests being important to, to progressive restrainers. Uh, and that I was saying in, in the piece of my Substack that uh, ultimately national interests, it's in the national interest of the United States to not have a solidified Russia-India alliance. That is not good when India is going to be the third uh, largest economic power by 2030 projected to be. Uh, it's not good to have uh, these "quote unquote" fence sitters or non-aligned nations play both sides of American uh, of the of the great power competition between the United States and China, uh, and then exploit right. Uh, not exploits the word, but uh, rely upon this uh, this framework to serve their own interests, and that's going to serve Russian interests and Chinese interests over American interests. I think that's something that that's a kind of framework, that's kind of a language, the type of language that would resonate in national uh, security making circles. And so, uh, I think, I, th I think therefore, therefore you have, uh, in my view, an opportunity to say, well, it's a national security interest of the United States to think broadly about relief for Ukraine, but, uh, yes, but including global South in that framework. So including India, including Ukraine. So when we think about rebuild, rebuilding Ukraine, in the early weeks of the war, when everyone was like, well, what about Syria or what about Afghanistan or what about the Congo? Uh, what about Somalia? Places like that. Um, is this just racism kind of thing? I don't think that's productive. Let's come up with a strategy for how we can connect Ukraine, the reconstruction of Ukraine when the war does. end. again, my idea about restrainers thinking uh, sort of forward looking, being forward looking. Uh, when the war does end, how do we have a strategy that includes these global South nations who've been left behind. And then how does that, and then uh, considering many of these global South nations have not uh, been forthcoming with their support for Ukraine or actually have somewhat, you know, just sat out the war uh, in, in many ways. Uh, how can we then include this, them in this conversation and in the strategy uh, that in, can I think ultimately build a better and peace, more peaceful world that, that gets us out of great power competition, right? That gets us out of this idea that, well, it's just the great powers who matter. Uh, and then everyone else is just, you know, in it for like a proxy, like a proxy war kind of thing. We're back in the cold war, a new cold war framework, which is my biggest concern is that great power competition in many ways is an, is an homage to the cold war. It's, it's, it's bringing us back to that era. Obviously the geopolitical dynamics are different. It's not a cold war, but we're we're thinking in Cold War terms, and that's not good for the world, uh, and it's not good for Ukraine. It's not going to be good for Ukraine, I would argue, um, in a post-war environment. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. I really appreciate it and appreciate all of your writing. I do have a couple questions, I think, coming um, from both pieces. Um, but I'd like to start with this idea that we need to dis disperse or dispense with the Cold War thinking and you wrote in your piece about the future of restraint, uh, and I'll you know, quote you, you had mentioned that we should not, we should be more forward thinking. And you quote Emma Ashford arguing in that vein, she says um, they must build uh, an alternative strategy for liberal international to liberal internationalism that is codified around principles of universal equity, freedom from foreign interference, coercion, invasion, global collaboration across wealthy and poor nations and international institutions that provide checks and balances on military spending. My question to you is this sounds fantastic. 
but it also sounds like the same arguments that the liberal or internationalists would be making uh, that we, we, you know, we, we have Prince, they also too believe in the principles of universal equity and freedom from foreign interference, coercion and invasion. And I could see them making those arguments for a tougher policy against uh, the, Russia and including Russia and in a uh, post-war security framework, even setting up a new Cold War against Russia. How and I, I know we want to be forward thinking, but how do you make the arguments on behalf of restrainers that um, uh, that we need to avoid the Cold War thinking that would try to put Russia in a certain box or diminish its power or authority in the region um, and, and exclude it from security framework so we can move on? How how do you argue? How do progressive restrainers argue against the liberal? interventionists in that regard, because it does seem like there's shared principles here. It's just different ways of going about them. Yeah. This was one of the critiques uh, of my piece was that, well, I'm just, (laughs) I'm just offering a different version of liberal internationalism. I'm actually offering just more of a, uh, you know, an earlier version of it, even if you like like sort of a post World War II era vision of liberal internationalism. Um, and maybe that's due to the fact that I didn't want to elaborate too much in the piece on specifics. I wanted to give something, I want to offer something broad that people could respond to and then create a dialogue and follow up in, in other pieces, follow up on my Substack and other places. Um, and, and I think, yeah, there, there is, as you say, Kelly, there is something to the fact that what restrainers want, uh, global peace, demilitarization, uh, equity uh, of sorts even, uh, has uh, tenants, the tenants of liberal internationalism, they're there, right? They're, they're, they're shared. I think what distinguishes liberal internationalists from my sort of internationalist vision for restraint is this idea of uh, distributive justice, right? That that has a long history, um, and that if you he- listen to the language of liberal internationalists who talk about like world government, um, uh, like Emory Slaughter, and even um, Richard Haas has had has talked about this a little bit, and there are others who've referenced world government, is that it, it's this idea of building and restoring and preserving democracy. Uh, that they talk about enhancing democracy through uh, in- innovation, through technological know-how. It, it's a version of technocratic liberalism that uh, I think has, is problematic um, for various historical and contemporary reasons. Uh, and so, therefore, if if you're, I'm not just interested in preserving democracy or furthering democracy. Um, and not even creating democracy. That's that's then that sort of gets you into the neoconservative camp, depending upon how you wish to do that. Um, but I'm interested in sort of working within the framework of international relations to figure out how we can redistribute resources across the world and further the interests of poor and uh, quote unquote developing nations uh, in this era of great power competition. So these nations have a voice, right, in uh, or a greater voice on the world stage. And this is something that Global South nations have been working for since the 60s and 70s, since de- the moment of 
uh, era of decolonization. Uh, and if my point would be that if, you're, if we're truly interested in sort of, a, we don't want another Cold War, if we don't want a great power competition, why why don't we look to the interests of global South and global South nations uh, to uh, to be more assertive on the world season and, and, and connect them to American uh, interests uh, through economic power, right? And like, I'd see the world often in material terms. That's just how, how I often, you know, change begins on a material basis first, um, and then ideology and culture follows. Um, and so if that's the case, then I think, uh, this distinguishes, I, I would say, this distinguishes me from liberal internationalists of old who would just say, let's just create a bunch of, of institutions and by virtue of those institutions, by sort of plurality of those institutions and, and the way they work in the international system, uh, you know, things will manage themselves, work themselves out. This is like a Woodrow Wilson type vision of, of world government, if you will. Even um, I don't think that's that that can happen. There has to be some, there has to be a way in which a mechanism in which we force uh, great power nations uh, like the United States, democracies like the United States and Europe uh, to contribute more to uh, two nations that they have been uh, responsible for uh, putting in often, not always, but putting in, in the current conditions that they're in, like Afghanistan, for instance, the United States is just kind of leaving Afghanistan, putting in the corner. And now that we're, we're out of Afghanistan as of September uh, fall of 2021, like that's just it. And there's all sorts of food shortages problems and, you know, there's certain of the Taliban. That's just, we're just leaving that behind. We're just leaving the war on terror behind. And my vision for world affairs would be one that we don't, we don't, we're not allowed to do that. The United States is not allowed to leave Afghanistan, leave countries that it's uh, in some cases decimated um, behind in, in, in this new thrust towards great power competition. I totally get that. And I agree with you. And it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see Afghanistan abandoned the way it has been. And I would argue that to a certain degree, Iraq has too. And we forget how much damage and destruction had been wrought by the war in Iraq. And then the United States joining forces with the Iraqi army to oust ISIS in 2014 and just completely obliterating the city of Mosul. And I don't think to this day they've actually been able to rebuild. How, how, how in fact, do we force uh, economic powers to um, do their due diligence in helping these countries and distributing, as you say, wealth to global South countries that, that need the assistance when we see time and again, like in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, that there are plenty of international efforts to raise money and bring business into these countries, but they always seem to fall short. Do you, do you have anything in mind that would be a, a mechanism that, as you say, would, 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 would not allow or force these countries to work together in, in these aims. And, and how, and my second question is, how do you get the global South countries um, that could assist and, and um, get on board with say a Ukrainian reconstruction program? Um, if it is clear that they are looking out for like everybody else, their own interests, mm -hmm. what do you do to, to provide the glue that would be required for this? Kind of yeah, I, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I, I don't have a panacea. <laughs> I wish I did. 
Um, but just a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first, as you alluded to, I don't think development is a, is a way, is, is a, is a model, right? Like this is the, whether it's done through pub, public private networks or whether it's done through NGOs or whether it's done through, um, private investment, uh, it's, it's just not going to work, right? Like the, the getting people to pour money into, uh, modernizing a state to put it in kind of anachronistic terms, it's, it's just not going to get us anywhere. Um, uh, it's not going to get us again to this idea of, of justice and distributive justice. Um, I think you have to do it. I mean, global South nations can assert power in organizations like the G20, for instance, I think the G20, I think this is what Adam Tuza said. And I referenced the Tuz piece in, in, in my own, uh, G20 and nations do have can play a role uh, in asserting for their own interests and and can be uh, like they did during the Cold War without trying to adopt Cold War paradigms. Um, you know, say well, if, you know, we'll withhold uh, you know support for Ukraine if you don't get us um, X Y Z or. Um, the issue of resources and oil, like oil nations, right? Like I think can, can play a role uh, in this, but also on climate change and other issues. This is what I was talking about um, that Biden. And I think he's been good on this and could be better. Biden has been saying, you know, climate change is an existential threat. We should do more. Uh, if he's really serious, if he's, if he's serious about that and interested in, in climate change on a global scale, and getting global nations together, um, not just the United States and China, um, who produce the most um, carbon, right, in, in the world, uh, two nations that produce, not, not produce the most carbon, they're two largest um, carbon producing nations uh, in the world, that that there's an opportunity to get India on board, right, um, with this as well. And, and, and uh, nations that are that are have alliances with India. Uh, there are ways in which the United States can think creatively about attaching aid to other geostrategic global issues that um, we haven't done in the past that we're not thinking about, because again, we're too caught up in great power competition that everything has to be done as a check to China uh, or means to thwart Russia that we're not thinking in these collaborative terms. And, and I think that's, that's going to open up opportunities. I would say um, working through the United Nations and there's series of, there's a series of initiatives at the United Nations of thinking and, like global terms about about uh, the future, uh, whether it be again pandemic relief or climate change. Uh, working with within those initiatives are, are quite good. There's the G77 is still there. I mean, yeah, there there are all sorts of ways I think we can think about within current institutions reforming foreign policy and global uh, global security. Uh, I would say the United States, though, has, I mean, this is the thing. The United States has to be on board. Europe has to be on board. Um, and I think it starts first, therefore, with like this rejecting this great power competition model. And then that then that opens up doors um, to thinking about avenues um, for, you know, for, for, you know, for just, a, I think, in general, uh, to not put in such lofty terms, but a better, more peaceful world. Right. Well, and one of the other reasons to be rejecting great power competition, uh, as you and Van Jackson spell out in your article from last year, uh, is that great power rivalry corrodes and corrupts our domestic politics and hurts our society, uh, in, in addition to the damage that it does to the rest of the world. Uh, as you said, if the United States wants a well-functioning polity with a civil society at peace, the last thing it should seek is great power rivalry. 
Uh, so can you say a little bit more about why that rivalry is so harmful uh, to us here at home as well? Yeah, I, I think, um, again, just to provide a little context, that piece with Van came out of our shared, maybe disgust is too harsh a word, but uh, <laughs> our, our our shared uh, frustration, another word I've used, um, in how the Cold War was being depicted in uh, circles in Washington D.C., that it was it, the, the the memory of the Cold War was being uh, weaponized, if you will, uh, to further great power competition, to to actually to so, you know make it normative. Um, and what I was trying to do, and what Van and I were trying to do with that piece, was to say, well, the Cold War wasn't you know this long piece um, that led to stability, this unipolar moment that you know we're, we're hoping to return to after twenty years of of the war on terror, but it really was uh, a moment that uh, you know we're concerned about the threat of democracy now, where democracy in the United States wasn't wasn't in a in, in a great shape because of the Cold War. You had uh, divisions of um, amongst neighbor amongst neighbor over like who was a communist like the McCarthy period with this heightened uh concern over what you would say would get you fired then and you know not in all circles but in many places uh that that the your affiliations that you had during world war world war ii came back to you in the post-cold war period if you know uh things like that like there are all sorts of ways in which uh People were targeted uh, during the Cold War uh, for uh, supporting, uh, at one point, communism or the Soviet Union in, in earlier decades, in the 30s and, and 40s. Um, but more more broadly, I think you know, the Cold War was a, for political parties, for the Democratic Party, for instance, and I've written about this in other places, um, was not good for uh, thinking about or wasn't in the overall uh, furthering race and economic reform, you know, within the Democratic Party that it, it hampered it in many ways that uh, you have uh, the New Deal being killed off by the Cold War in some ways, or at least like some of the vision, like social democratic elements of the New Deal being killed off by the Cold War. And that if you have a, Different, different different conflict or a different Cold War, different whatever we want to put it in the post-war environment. The Cold War did not taking shape in the way uh, it did. Uh, I think you would you would see uh, an earlier attempt at uh, economic justice and so and racial justice that you didn't have, and then you know, delays in, in gender rights and and, and justice for, uh, for women, uh, all sorts of things along those lines. Uh, that that history we tried to flesh out, you know, complicates this idea that well, the Cold War was ultimately a net good for the United States, uh, and that people suffer in great power com- competition, and often those people who do suffer uh, are those who are most mar- most marginalized by society. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing now is that sort of this heightened you know xenophobia is boomeranging back in the United States. Uh, in anti-Chinese attacks, of course, COVID, you know, was contribute or contributed to this. Um, you see the United States uh, just after the you know, early months of the Biden administration, you didn't see the United States pulling back uh, on uh, things like pandemic relief, uh, like you know, get the college loan relief. That was great, but 
didn't go as far as as, as some of, some has some have wanted. Um, you see Biden having to sacrifice or at least wrap his domestic agenda within uh, a framework of great power competition or sacrifice that that agenda to it. Uh, and I think that's an echo of the Cold War, where the Democratic Party had to uh, justify everything it wanted on on domestic grounds as a as a bulwark against communism. Uh, and I think that's just not good uh, for thinking about how we achieve equality in the United States and how we improve our democracy. That great power competition doesn't improve democracy. Um, just yeah, this idea that it unites people and around a shared uh, enemy. Um, it doesn't, you know, in Cold War terms, it didn't. There, there, you know, and and I don't think it will in the contemporaneous sense. Uh, it's just that the the memory that's being constructed around it, I think, is is uh, that's just that's what's happening. And and we were trying to caution people uh, against that, given what happened in both historical and in contemporary terms. Right. Well, and I think that makes a lot of sense to, to the way that you're spelling it out, uh, because what we see every time there's one of these great uh, global struggles uh, or, or something that is picked as a great global struggle is that it, it often ends up being uh, part of part of that struggle ends up being directed at part of the population here at home. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, during the war on terror, we saw that with uh, harassment and, and surveillance of Muslims. Uh, uh, abuses against Muslim Americans, and so that that it keeps happening every time we we go through this, and and we're we're already starting to see some of that with the rivalry with China. Um, I think we're out of time. I, I did have one more question, but we, we won't have time for it today. I think um, so. We'll just close there. But uh, thanks very much, uh, Michael Brennis. Uh, you can read his work at uh, his Substack, Warfare and Welfare. Uh, and he's also a contributor at Foreign Exchanges. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.